and welcome to this new edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. Uh, I'm Richard Lander, uh, my co-host is Angus Foote, and our data mavens are Frank Talbot and Nietzsche Long. And uh, just to continue the series of looking at distinguished individual fund managers, which we're doing for the time being, uh, we're going to talk about uh, someone who's uh, got amazingly high and consistent CityWire ratings, his name is Mike Fox, and he comes from Royal London Asset Management, based in London, as as you would guess. Uh, and Nisha Long is going to tell us more about him. So welcome, Nisha. Uh, hi, Richard. Yes, as you mentioned, uh, Mike Fox, uh, Royal London Citywide AAA rated manager consistently for the past 13 months and has been consistently rated since February 2013. Now, in that time, it's just one tiny blip in 2017. But you know what? This is a really impressive run from a very successful manager. Um, now, he is one of the longest serving managers in the sustainable investment space. And before all the hype of ESG investing really began. And that's why I want to talk about him today, because, you know, ESG investing has been going on for a long time. And he is one of those people who have, you know, embraced it you know, for decades and, um, and and how sustainable investing, you know, works in the long term. So he currently has four um, funds under management. It's a mix of um, global equities. He's also got mixed assets in there on an aggressive side, a balanced side, um, UK or companies. So a bit of everything for different risk profiling, matching for investors, which, you know, which is great that you do need that um, those differences. Now, um, he was recently, I think this is quite interesting, he has been, you know, recently joined on these funds by two co-managers since 2020, Sebastian Begulin and George Cowdy. So they joined him on in 2020. Now, this could be succession planning or trying to eliminate key person risks because after all, he is, you know, if you look at his credentials, he is a star manager and he's always delivered over the long term. Um, so, I just want to concentrate on one of his his funds um, for the purposes of this podcast. Um, I want to look at the Sustainable Leaders Fund. Um, the fund is around £3.2 billion pounds in size. You know, it's not small fish we're talking about here. You know, it's continuously taking in money in you know, not masses, but it's still, you know, just last year, £500 million went in. Um, so it is really on the radar of investors. Um so what he looks at in all of his funds is um, companies that have a benefit to society through their products or their services, and they must have good ESG credentials. We've heard about all that you know, ESG credentials all the time, but he's been looking at this for a very long time. And what I find impressive about his investment style and processes is that out of the 18 years that he has managed this fund, he's just had four negative return periods, only four out of all that time. And it is the years that you kind of expect that to happen anyway, you know, with because it was market wide. And that's why his fund went down. So 2007, we had the chop, you know, China stock bubble then. Um, 2008, don't need to say more, global financial crisis. 2011, now this is, you know, the euro debt crisis, which did kind of go into, you know, the um, equity markets, but also the S&P did have a short-lived bear market um, in that year. And then 2018, you know, President Trump, trade war with China did hit his fund. It is a, like a global fund as well. You know, the, some of the stocks are 
international and also there were concerns of fed rate rises as well so but he's he held his own in all of those periods and lost less than some of his peers in that sector those sectors so nice so far yeah i, I think he's absolutely great in those kind of um, especially those kind of markets um so this year as you all know you know it's all been about energy and financials you know they've been performing the best this year since the start of this year but this is a sustainable fund and understandably he doesn't have energy as in the dirty energy stocks as we'd call them in oil gas etc and avoids mining companies again you'd know you'd understand that to happen and also underweights resources now this has slightly hit his performance last year and a bit into this year but he's still producing the goods you know with his stock picks in other well diversified areas you know these are short term blips and you know this is one for the long term and i think just the emphasis of that point that if you can stomach the bouts of volatility especially with these sustainable funds you know it is a long-term game so it's one of those funds that you just hold in your pension for example for a long time leave it alone you know he'll do the job for you in that riding you know these market cycles um but he's very proactive a very proactive um active manager so in terms of esg so a decade back he was looking at um negative screening so he's avoiding tobacco mining you know armaments etc and now he now he's actually shifted that focus onto positive screening and which is you know finding companies which have good ESG credentials but it is relative to the peers that he's looking at and this has opened up the investment universe for him because if you think about sustainable investing you do sometimes have you know that the universe has shrunk because of all the things that you need to take out of that portfolio if it doesn't have the credentials so you know his portfolio this portfolio itself is quite concentrated over its lifetime it's had 40 to 50 stocks at the moment it just has 41 stocks you know so it's very high conviction areas that he goes into and you know taking out these um selections but as i said you know he moves with the times he did have us tech stocks especially you know for many years actually but in 2018 he did reduce those now that might have hit him a bit in 2020 but having said that you know he did the right thing because he felt that you know it wasn't with his strategy especially with data privacy for example so you know got rid of some yeah it's 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 cushioned him no it's interesting uh, uh, you sold it very well you didn't need to for me because i've got some already uh and you know i did buy it a few years ago and noticed how tech heavy it was uh and it brings us to the question i, I don't know if angus and frank you know uh i've got s- stuff to say on this you know why are tech companies esg uh because you, you know they yeah they connected the world they they played a huge part in getting us through through the uh, pandemic i guess but are they really esg happy stocks there's a huge question are they esg on many metrics there they're some of the least offensive companies that, that you can buy and you can access but as ever esg is a massive journey as we learn more about about what it means where, where the offensive parts of the global economy really are that's when they're getting caught up your companies like microsoft you know the whole right to repair movement that, that's sort of made apple come out and say they're now going to give you the chance to or third parties to, to repair their iphones is sort of a landmark moment and they're doing that because they know the regulations coming because they know they do need to clean up the rack there are aspects of their business practices that aren't as white as white obviously the social impact of something like facebook and 
knowing what you do online better than what you do and serving you that content the whole the whole way in which it's uh, it's positioned I, I think you know it needs some overarching regulation to to get into the weeds of that but in terms of their carbon footprint outside of e-waste uh they're actually pretty inoffensive which is why they've screened so well historically and while they're in virtually every year's cheap portfolio there is i mean nisha mentioned he he uses his uh, international uh exposure so it's a uk equity fund but he's got up to 20 percent he can buy overseas and he has got microsoft he has got adidas a few select companies texas instruments as well that he feels sort of serve uh, uh that well angus you want to come in well i was going to say i think that if we talk about esg friendly stocks we are already well behind the curve on this because i don't think anyone sophisticated is thinking about ESG friendly stocks anymore. But the, the three things actually that I scribbled down while um, while you guys were talking. And firstly, Frank, you mentioned carbon footprint. So carbon footprint is the E. It's, you know, that's all about environment and climate. So one point is that increasingly these three things are separate. ES and G are not the same thing. They've been lumped together for reasons of convenience. Um, there's a lot of talk, you know, a lot of what's happening is around the E because climate is seen as the most pressing issue and because there's regulation and government policy. Um, S kind of creeping up a bit. Governance should always have been there. Um, the, one of the things that I've been hearing a lot about is the fact that E requires a shift in capital. The other two largely require a, um, a change in process and thinking. They don't require a massive reallocation of capital, which the climate thing does. Um, Second point, um, when you talk about an ESG-friendly company, most ESG scoring systems are entirely backward-looking. And a couple of people made the point to me recently that actually, if you're looking for a company that really understands the need to transition, to do things differently in future, in many cases, the companies that understand that the best are the ones that have just had a major blow-up. So if you've been through some terrible pollution-related scandal, then you're going to make very, very sure you put processes in place to make sure that doesn't happen again. So Also, your competitors within your industry, they see it and they start to clean up their act because they know they true. could be next. That's true, Frank. True. But, but I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this, is what, this is what I'm hearing from the market, that a lot of people feel that you know, some, of the, some of the companies that are doing the most to change uh, are the ones that have been through um, you know, something traumatic. And one final point is risk-adjusted return. You know, people increasingly are not talking about you know, ESG as a conceptual investment. They're saying, you know, these are risks. So what I want is a manager who delivers good risk-adjusted return. Part of doing that is considering and building in the risks that relate to what we are, you know, so far have called ESG. So Strand, it's just stranded assets. Well, but yeah, but re regardless of whether stranded assets or anything else, you should look at everything with a thorough, you know, risk-based assessment of the prospects of that stock and a key part of that in future will relate to climate to the social factors and to, and of course always to governance lisa yeah so I mean, you mentioned the rating agencies as well yes it is a concern that is all backward looking and also um, the way they do the analysis is of basis you mentioned the risk is based on risk how much risk are you putting in your company so just to give you an example you know if you have reputational damage that is under the s that will affect the financial materiality of the company that affects your bottom line and in esg terms that is called the triple bottom line you know this all has effects on your if your products being recalled again that's an s factor within this you know so i think um, and i have mentioned it before i think E of ESG has been taken care of, you know, 
very well in the ESG world. S is really lacking. And I think that is where most of your returns can come from. For example, you know, when you are looking at transitioning, for example, like BP, and you mentioned that they did have, you know, the deep water horizon, you know, um, crisis that they had. But what they're doing now is, you know, one example is they're partnering with a Scottish city, Aberdeen, to get a clean energy in process. They've partnered with BP to help them with that transition to make it an effective clean energy city, um, which I thought, you know, they're doing, they're transitioning this way. And a lot of investments of these big energy companies are going towards, you know, these kind of um, programs that they're doing around the world. So even though you see that, you know, okay, they've still got their oils and gas, but this transition process is going to take decades. It's not going to happen overnight. As long as we can see through their balance sheets where that investment is going, how much they are actually, you know, it's not going into their reserve capitals. They're actually using that money to get to this transition. I think that's the ones, you know, you start need to start looking at in this. I know that Mike Fox doesn't have en- this kind of energy, but he does have you know, clean energy stocks within his portfolio, which are involved in, you know, the transitioning process as well. So, you know, there is, you know, more to go in this area. Does he do this? I get the impression I might be wrong that he does this on a case by case, stock by stock basis, rather than putting any of these things through the screens, with the obvious exception that he's not going to go for guns, tobacco and, and yeah, energy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as with any manager, he has the screens as well and the ESG screens. He is a bottom-up stock picker, so he is starting at you know the company level. He's, but as with all um, you know managers, we have seen you know some shifts. He still will look at themes as well, like he did in 2020. It was you know the pharma, that you know the healthcare, tech stocks, those kind of things that you were still looking at at the time. But ultimately, he is a bottom-up stock picker and will you know really look at the credentials of the company through his ESG screens. As I mentioned, he has made a shift from negative to positive screening, you know, over the time. So he's evolving, you know, as we get to know more of the metrics that we need to know, which I think is great. He's been in this game for decades, but he is moving with, you know, what's available as well. Frank, are you coming in there? Yeah, I mean, I was just uh, coming back to, to, to Mike again, that Nisha's assessment of his long-term performance is absolutely, you know, on the monies he was when i joined the company in 2006 he was the individual globally delivering the highest amount of our performance of any manager we tracked uh, and he did have that difficult period in 2008 crisis then obviously the rallying bank sectors he didn't fare particularly well on stuff that he was already excluding um, and, and companies that he, he didn't think were, were right to put his money with um, and has had just a phenomenal run um, what i found really interesting about his his biggest positions is only two of his top 20, as far as I can tell, have been initiated in the pandemic. So he is not he's not changing things around at all. Right? These are long term buy and hold stakes. They were Greg's and Compass Group. So both involved involved in the UK food industry. Uh, I found that to be very interesting. Just a, a note on performance year to date has been bad. Nisha did did talk about this down 7.4 percent, whereas believe it or not, the FTSE is actually flat uh, for, for the year, which, uh, again, is sort of quite surprising. Oil and banks. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly, right. And the stuff that he he can't buy um, and that he he wouldn't buy. Uh, And a little bit of trivia here in his top 10 holdings. You you two, this is probably directed more at Angus and Richard, but Nisha, you might also know. Second largest position is a company called Croder International. Do you know what? Famously, they produced uh, a cure for a particular type of disease. This is a uh, specialist chemicals company. So famously produced, so none of you know, Lorenzo's oil. 
I was really hoping you know, if you would get that because I don't know because I'm not old enough. But yeah, great movie. Def- definitely consume that. That's of, of all his top positions, that's actually had the worst run uh, year to date, down 25%. It's actually off 30% from uh, its December highs, but did has done well over the course of the, the pandemic. Interesting. Chemicals is a positive sector for him, even though some of the stuff... These are very speciality yeah. chemicals. These are not <laughs> fossil fuels or anything. So, Nisha, uh, just tell us a bit more about him. What, what's... You know, you say he's changed tech. He's gone down from tech. Where where did he shift to? Was it healthcare or? So I mean, he's been quite heavily in industrials um, for a long time. Um, some of his overweights are industrials. Um, healthcare, he's had a long standing. He's been. Um, since I've been tracking him, he's always had an overweight position to healthcare. And one of his positions is AstraZeneca in his top ten, and um, you know that's stayed since I think yeah a long time 2007 he first bought that one so you know it's a long mainstay in his portfolio so um but he does have you know underweight positions as well you know tech recently has gone down quite a bit and that is because you know some concerns as i mentioned before it is about the s of esg the data privacy fake news you know it impacts you know socially so you know all these um bigger companies and then regulations on top of it so you know avoidance of those kind of stocks but he did that quite early on anyway so um you know in that that kind of sense he's stuck with you know the long-term players he, he's not going to shift out in and out of these um, stocks. Yes, during the pandemic, he did, you know, initiate two new positions within his top 10. But he that is for a reason. He'll keep those for a long time um, within his portfolio. And basically, his highest conviction stocks, he will hold, you know, above 3%. Anything else is not really a high conviction enough for him. And that's one of his stated objectives as well. It will be, if it's one of those percentages, he will have that. Um, That is his high conviction area. And one thing I do want to mention is that pre-2009, he did have small cap stocks in his portfolio, but he's shifted that to large cap focus. And since then, he's become a large cap manager because of risk. And I said, he's been in this for decades. So he knows when to move and keep your portfolio, you know, riding along nicely over all the cycles. Um, The last thing I just want to say about him now, this is my personal opinion. He's a great stock picker and he has rewarded investors. Now, he sticks to his guns and is not swayed by market noise. And that's why I like him. You know, a high conviction manager that delivers for the long term. Excellent. Uh, just before we go, and just to show we are doing this live on the day, uh, we had today, you know, sticking on the ESG, that uh, Morningstar has booted out uh, an extraordinarily large number. I think it's something like a quarter of so-called European Sustainable Funds and said, you're not sustainable. I'm guessing, I don't know whether they've released the list. I'm guessing Mike uh, Fox's funds are not being booted out. Uh, but yeah, what's this is quite drastic, isn't it? It's quite drastic, but I completely agree with it. I've had a bugbear for ages. For example, China funds being in there, you know, for ESG credentials, they, the majority are Article 8 labelled funds. And for me, that was, you know, a red light, you know, that you need to look into this. M- most of these companies state-owned, you know, what's going on with regulations out there, etc. We know the story about, you know, China. So those funds, straight away, as soon as they were labelled Article 8, I was like, okay, so any fund can really be labelled an Article 8 then. That was my feeling behind it. 
and Morningstar saying enough yeah. already. We're enough. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's also a sign of things to come, isn't it? Because so, so Nisha, correct me if this is wrong, but as I understand it, at the moment, it's down to the asset manager to self-declare whether a fund meets Article 8 criteria. The actual regulatory part of it and being examined to see whether they, whether they do comply with the taxonomy is yet to come. So if Morningstar have done this already, then that suggests that when it, it reaches the regulatory stage, I think it's, is it July? Then I think no, that, yeah. that we could see a little bit more bloodletting. Yeah, it's in June 2022. That has, it's been a moving part for about two years now. It was supposed to be happening in January. Now it's gone to June, but now is the crux of it that they have to, it's mandatory. They will need to label their funds before it was voluntary until the date was coming, you know, if they wanted to label them right now for example, in the last year or so. But now it is, you know, I think it's the pedal is on the gas now. Right. We will see that coming. Uh, Nisha, thank you very much for that really thorough analysis of Mike Fox. Uh, sounds like, he, you know, well, I think we all know him. He's, he's walked the walk for the last 20 years and talking about ESG before anybody knew what it really stood for. So thank you for that. Thank you, Frank. And thank you for Angus. And thank you to everybody for listening to us and we will be back again in a fortnight.